Uh, you'll find our text on which we're going to meditate this evening in uh, Titus chapter 2, reading from verse 11. Beautiful words, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Our theme tonight is hope and self-control. Self-control, a fruit of our hope. <laughs> Dr. Alistair Noble of CARE Scotland, CARE, the, the Christian uh, campaigning group, made a significant contribution to the Scottish Parliament last week. On behalf of CARE, he uh, recommended that in the teaching in schools on sex and health, there ought to be included teaching on the appropriateness of saying no, of delaying sexual involvement until marriage. And he pointed out that the present policy, with its emphasis on harm reduction, was self-defeating. That in some ways, it almost encouraged young people to be sexually active. And he pointed out that the Christian position that he represented was that physical relationships should be confined to the context of marriage. Now, the response uh, that Dr. Noble had to the submission is not recorded, but I can imagine uh, what it would have been like. Uh, the bemusement, the perplexity, uh, maybe some condescending humor that anyone should think uh, to use the off-quoted term, in this day and age, that saying no was any kind of response to the problem of teenage pregnancy and so on. What we need, of course, is better education, better contraception. You can't expect young people to say no to their passions nowadays. But the Christian message is that grace has taught us self-control. It actually does teach us to say no to ungodly passions. One of the fruit, uh, one of the, well we would say one of the segments of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. It's one of those beautiful manifestations of the presence of the Holy Spirit within an individual. It's one of the consequences of the gospel. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when the gospel light is shone on uh, sin and darkness, one of the manifestations of sinfulness, of rebellion against God that it exposes is a lack of self-control. Remember when Paul is preaching to, to Felix, his wife, Felix's wife Priscilla is sitting beside him. And Paul, we're told, discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment that was to come. How uncomfortable this pair would have felt. Felix had uh, persuaded Priscilla to leave her previous husband in order to marry him. She was still a, a teenager at this point. They must have been shifting about in their seats as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Self-control is very prominent in Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, the context, of course, is that Titus is going to be uh, commissioned as an overseer of the, the church in Crete. He's to set up elders over the, 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 the churches in Crete. And the people of Crete at this time seemingly had a reputation for being anything but self-controlled. Paul quotes uh, what one of their own poets, prophets has said in verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. It's not exactly the most flattering thing to say about your own people that they are 
liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But that's what one of their people had said about his fellow Cretans. This was a kind of population that Titus was going to be living and serving God in. A social atmosphere when men had no inhibitions about playing fast and loose with the truth. Where they were brutish and sensual, ill-disciplined with their time. And where they gave free rein to all of their physical appetites. And just to describe it in those terms makes you realize, well, that's not so very different from our own day. That's exactly how people are today. (coughs) Paul typically tells Titus that he is to teach the truth to various groups, various sections within the church. And it's very interesting as you go through chapter 2 that in every category, self-control is something which is to be urged upon the people. And in nearly every case, it's actually explicitly mentioned. And when it's not, it is there by implication. First of all, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. The older women, sorry, for, for these older men, the, the temptation would be to, to behave or to speak in a way that would cause younger people just to, to despise them. What on earth is he pretending uh, to be like? Instead of finding inspiration in these older men, their lack of self-control would cause the younger men to look down upon them. Older women are also told to exercise self-control, and it's in relation to their speech again. They're not to speak slanderously of others. They're also to be self-controlled in relation to alcohol. They're to be busy, uh, sorry, the, the, younger, the younger women, uh, they're told to be self-controlled in terms of being busy about their duties in the household. There, there is to be a, a discipline about their use of time. They're not to fall into unchaste ways because they have too much time on their hands. Similarly, verse 6, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Titus himself as a young man, he's to set them a good example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. There it is again, self-discipline over your speech. Uh, Titus and the young men are to demonstrate seriousness and soundness of speech. Slaves, the final category, they are also to show self-control in their use of their words and their speech. They're not to talk back to their masters, even when they're intensely provoked. And so with each one of these categories, self-control features strongly in terms of the teaching Titus is to give to them. They're living in a culture where there's a lack of restraint. They are to be different. They're to demonstrate self-control in their lives because it's a fruit of the Spirit. As we said, this lack of restraint, this lack of self-control is one of the the chief characteristics of non-Christian society in our day and in our culture. Lack of self-control, a throwing off of restraint. You see it everywhere. You see it in the television. You see it in newspapers and magazines. You walk down the street, you see it. You go into the supermarket, you come across it. People who are controlled by their appetites rather than controlling their appetites. And the result is ugly. It really is. We live uh, in an area in Lanarkshire which is notorious as the the Buckfast Triangle. And we see the, the, the effect of excessive drinking all around us. Sexual license robs people of their dignity and true beauty. Romantic affections debased when people sell themselves cheaply. And the fruit of a lack of restraint and self-control is chronic bad health. Depression, self-loathing. A bitter harvest because self-control is abandoned. And in verse 10... Sorry, in verse 11, rather, uh, there is a basis given 
for living a life in which self-control is one of the virtues. The word for in verse 11 indicates that what Paul is going on to say uh, is linked with what's gone before. His teaching to the different categories in the church about being self-controlled is based on the doctrine that he gives us in verses 11 to 14. Now it's interesting that this is, <laughs> this is the opposite way around of the way Paul usually teaches. You'll know that in the epistles what Paul usually does is that there is a, a doctrinal uh, beginning to the epistle. And then at the conclusion you usually get the practical exhortations, the practical bits at the end, the, theolog the theological teachings at the beginning. Some as we call it the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is this is what you are in Christ. You're united to Christ and this has resulted in this change in, in your identity. And therefore, the imperative, do this. This is how you're to live. So the practical follows the, the doctrinal. Here it's the other way around. We're given the practical instruction as to what's to be taught. And then we're given the doctrinal basis on which that uh, follows. If you want to live a life that's self-controlled, Paul says, you have to do something which is actually very difficult to do in everyday life. You're to look in two directions. You're to have a look at the past, at the coming of Jesus then, but you're also to keep an eye on the return of Jesus in the future. The first appearing and then his second appearing. And because this is part of our series on, on hope, messages of hope, we're going to focus upon the second part of that, our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But it's connected with his first appearing. We have to have an eye on both. And we're going to spend a little time on uh, the first of these also. We're going to consider first the grace of God that brings salvation, that has appeared to all men. This is a wonderful expression. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace has appeared. Now, we can distinguish two kinds of grace. There's what we call a common grace. And then there's this grace, saving grace. Common grace uh, is all around us. Every good thing that we have in the world is here by God's grace. From, in a physical sense, the very fact that, that uh, the sun will shine upon the, the good and the evil. They benefit from God's goodness by his common grace. The skills that a musician has are given by God. The skills of an artist when they, they produce something which is inspiring and elevates your thinking. They may not know Jesus Christ personally and savingly, but they have been endowed with gifts which come from God. And we call this God's common grace. God loads his grace even upon the ungrateful. But there is a saving grace. And this is what Paul is talking about here. The grace that brings salvation. And it's been made visible. Because God's saving grace, his disposition, his determination to save people from the consequences of sin... That has been there before it became visible. He is the God of all grace. But it has been revealed. How? How has the grace that brings salvation been made manifest? It's been revealed in Jesus, of course. In the incarnation, God's saving grace has appeared to all men. John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, seen with our eyes, his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He has appeared to men. 
God's way of salvation was made, made, made uh, known to the prophets, but the prophets themselves didn't understand fully what it was the Spirit of God was saying to them. The prophets, Peter says, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And then the grace that brings salvation appeared, was made manifest, came as a babe in a manger. What a moment that was in human history. God's grace appeared. No wonder Simeon was filled with gladness and joy when his eyes saw what the prophets had promised. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The grace that brings salvation has appeared. And verse 14 tells us why. Why that appeared. The grace that brings salvation has appeared in Jesus Christ and he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Jesus took on human flesh, became visible to the outer eye to redeem us. He gave his life as a payment. He redeemed us. He paid the debt that we had incurred because of our sin, a debt we could never pay He also came, he was made manifest to purify us. That he might have a people purified from the grubbiness, the defilement, the pollution of sin. Who would be his very own. A people who are eager to do what is good. His coming has a practical purpose. He has come to make us a godly people. That's why Paul can say that the grace that has appeared teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us, he teaches us to be self-controlled Jesus has appeared and has taught us to live self-controlled lives. Jesus is coming again. And he is our blessed hope. This is the future look. And this is our focus in these remaining moments. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. The blessed hope. We're talking about Jesus. It's a beautiful way of speaking about the Savior. The blessed hope. You remember uh, early on when we, we started thinking about hope, we defined it in this way. It's a confident expectation of a future event that affects the way we live now. A confident expectation of a future event that affects the way we live now. Christians are people of the blessed hope. We confidently expect the return of Jesus and that confident expectation has a powerful effect on how we live now. Our blessed hope affects how We live now. We believe that when Jesus returns, he will bring in our full salvation. You know, it's interesting that there are parts of the New Testament which virtually define the Christian as someone who is looking forward to Jesus' return. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writing again, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing, those who are eagerly desirous of Jesus to return again. He will bring his reward for them. 
It's even sharper in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. Not to take away sin. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. To whom will Jesus bring salvation? Whom does Jesus save? He saves those who are waiting for him. You see how, how Paul almost, or, or the writer to the Hebrews almost defines the, the, the believer as one who is waiting for Jesus. Now, in view of that, it should make us tremble that there are people who are within the, the visible church, even teachers within the visible church, who don't believe in the physical return of Jesus. Let me quote to you uh, two shocking examples. One is Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who was probably one of the most influential New Testament scholars of the 20th century. And this is what he wrote. The mythical eschatology, how disparaging, the mythical eschatology is untenable for the simple reason that the parousia, the, the return of Christ, never took place as the New Testament expected. History did not come to an end. And as every schoolboy knows, it will continue to run its course. Even if we believe that the world as we know it will come to an end in time, we expect the end to take the form of a natural catastrophe, not of a mythical event such as the New Testament expects. What horrifying overconfidence. Here's an example closer to home. Here's a quote from somebody who used to be professor of biblical criticism in Glasgow University who was training ministers. Ernest Best in his uh, commentary on the Thessalonian epistles. We have to conclude that the end is something with which men will never have to reckon in practical terms, again excluding the possible destruction of our own planet, and that it is as wrong to think of a real physical end, which God achieves in some public way, as it is to think of a real physical beginning. Awful. Why would men who do not believe such enormous chunks of the New Testament, why would they keep up the pretense of being followers of Jesus Christ? Our hope, our blessed hope, is the return of Jesus. What does Paul say about this? He says it will be a blessed hope. It won't be a cursed hope for us, his people. It will be a blessed hope. It will be a wonderful thing. Jesus is returning to bring blessing for us. Jesus told the disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good courage, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus is coming at the last, and he will overcome all the trouble that all his people have ever faced in this world. He is going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. He will return as our Redeemer. And it will be the most happy event for all believers. We will rejoice to see him. Yes, he will come as a judge. Yes, it will be awesome and terrible. But we will see him as the one who has already taken our place. It will be a joyful event. If we're Christians, our spirits will rise when we see Jesus appearing to our view. It's a time for Jesus' people to enter into their inheritance. In this life, we will be marginalized. We will be persecuted, looked down upon, despised. But when Jesus returns, he will bring us into his kingdom. He will bring us into his nearer presence. It will be a blessed hope. Secondly, uh, it will be a visible return. The appearing or the epiphany of the one we have loved. Uh, Peter writes in his epistle, Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. 
and are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Though you haven't seen him, yet you love him. We haven't seen Jesus, but if we're Christians tonight, we love Jesus. We love him. And the, the knowledge that we are in, in a saving relationship with him brings joy to our hearts. Gives, it's our chief source of comfort. But what will it be like to see him when he comes uh, to our view? It will be like the, the man uh, blind from birth whose eyes are opened to see his bride as they stand before the minister and sees her in all her beauty. That will be what it's like for the Christian to see the Lord Jesus, a visible appearing. It will be a glorious appearing. Jesus came, first of all, in humility, obscurity. He came to a, a buyer. The spectators were cattle and maybe sheep. Shepherds, humble shepherds, worshipped. But he will return as the king who has conquered. He will be announced by the angelic herald. Everyone will see him. The dead will be raised to life. It will be a glorious appearing. And it will be glorious, fourthly, because he comes as our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior. This isn't two people we're talking about here. It's not God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is one and the same. This is one of the great ascriptions of divinity to Jesus. Jesus is God. He is our great God and Savior. Be bizarre for us to think anything else. The New Testament only knows of a return of, of Jesus Christ. But of course he is divine. He is the Son of God, our great God and Savior. This is our blessed hope. Why though should it result in self-control? Why the, the practical outworking as self-control? Well, simply because if we're expecting Jesus' return, and if Jesus has told us that nobody knows when he will come except the Father, then we are to live in a state of readiness for Jesus' return. This is the great moment in history. And you and I may be privileged to live through it. Who knows? What we do know is that we don't want to be caught unawares. Should that happen? How inappropriate it would be for anyone who names the, the name of Jesus. Who is a follower of Jesus. To be engaged in some kind of activity that would jar. If Jesus appeared to the human eye. For us to be tipsy with alcohol when Jesus came. Would be inappropriate. For us to be using our tongue in, an, in a, a wrongful way. Slandering our neighbor. Passing on a bad report. Or using our eyes lustfully to look upon a woman. To do any of these kind of things would be wrong. And there's only one way to ensure that such a dreadful exposure did not take place. And that is self-control to discipline our lives that we live in a godly way the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ this is a practical doctrine it's not something that we should ever get admired in, in regard to speculation over all of the, the various theories, the imponderables, uh, in regard to the return of Christ. And sadly, many sections of the Christian church do get completely wound up in discussing whether uh, they believe in a rapture or not, or whether Christ will have a literal reign on earth for a thousand years after his appearance. C.H. Spurgeon uh, reputedly chided uh, the Plymouth Brethren on one occasion because they were well known for being absorbed in speculation over the coming of Christ. And he paraphrased Acts 1 verse 11, the words of the angel to those who are looking up at the ascending Christ. Uh, Men of Plymouth, why do ye gaze continually up into the heavens? 
the doctrine is not for speculation, not for heaven gazing. It's a practical doctrine. And Jesus always spoke about his return practically. There was a practical exhortation attached. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. I will, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See the warning? Be ready, be self-controlled, so that you will not be ashamed at the appearing of the Son of Man. We're finished. But how do we, how do we apply it? What, what? practical steps do we take uh, to make our, our hope of the return of Jesus effective in delivering self-control in our lives? Well, with most of these things, it's best that we take little steps, isn't it? To do the things that we can do to begin. We can ask the Lord to help us to incorporate in our, our times of prayer, maybe at the beginning of the day, to ask the Lord to help us to think for just a little while on the fact that Jesus is coming. To meditate upon that, even for a moment or two, so that we catch something of the thrill that we have a blessed hope. That's one thing that we could do. Another thing is that we could review our plans for the day. What am I about to engage in today? Which of these activities would I be ashamed to be found in, involved in, should Jesus come? And reflecting on that and maybe on our recent behavior, we ask God to, to give us the self-control that will enable us to live godly and upright lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ Amen, may God bless to us our meditation upon his word we're going to sing a, a hymn about the coming of Christ now Lo, he comes with clouds descending. I'm not sure how many, how many verses have we doing. Oh, it's not too bad. We'll sing it all. <laughs> Lo, he comes with clouds descending once for our salvation slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia. Christ the Lord returns to reign. Lord, he comes with clouds descending once for our salvation slain thousand thousand
may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.